The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, thank you for this moment of gathering us here before you and before your word. I'm grateful for it yet again and am mindful of how at this moment we perhaps need a special help of your grace. Would you please, for us here this morning, as we hear this, would you draw near and simultaneously make completely clear what is here, and do not crush us with it, please, both. Because what is here is hard when it's clear. But you have also said in your word that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Not your, not your firmness, but your gentleness. The firmness shows us the need for repentance and the gentleness woos us. And so please, Lord, be firm and gentle. Be be clear but not crushing. Open up your word here this morning, please, and speak and grow us, your people, and give maybe some insight to those who, who maybe hear this somehow or another who aren't your people. Give some insight to others even about what it would look like to be yours and what it would look like to walk with you in peace as instruments of peace. So speak, Lord, be clear, and be kind. pray this in Christ's name, for the good of his name, for the good of your name, Father, for the good of your people, us, your church, for the good of the world. Please speak. Thank you. Amen. I became a Christian during my freshman year in college. And as I began to learn what that meant a little bit, began to grow some and kind of come to grasp with it, I at one point became uh, pleased to realize that I wasn't breaking any of the Ten Commandments anymore. I was kind of happy with myself about that until someone popped my bubble by showing me the passage that we're going to look at here this morning. And I realized that the commandments of God took on a whole new life and that I was not as righteous as I thought I was. You shall not murder actually did apply to me still, as it does to you also still. Jesus is going to explain how that is, and as he does so, obviously he is not remotely abolishing the Old Testament or the Old Testament law. He told us this in the passage that we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 5. He didn't come to eliminate the Old Testament law. He didn't come to put a line through it or exit out or to in some way loose it or relax it, ease it for us somehow. He's actually here to fulfill it, to uphold it, and to teach us likewise how to uphold it. 
That was last week. And from that introductory explanation then, he launches right into the heart of this teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, by launching into the heart of the law, the Ten Commandments. Not discarding them, but also not making them harder. He's not loosing them, nor is he tightening them. He's actually just telling us what they always meant all along. This is what it's always been about. The commandments of God, then we're going to realize, are far deeper than we know, far more demanding, and they demand a righteousness that is far deeper and far wider than we know and one that we can manage. A righteousness that is greater than the insufficient ways the Pharisees can produce. We talked about this last week also in the verse immediately right before this, verse 20. We're going to start in verse 21. But the verse right before this pointed out that we need a righteousness that far exceeds what the Pharisees can offer. A very careful, very diligent, carefully attended to doing of what God specified, what he wrote down. That's not enough. We need more than that. That won't make you good in God's eyes. It won't even get you into the kingdom of heaven, let alone make you well acclaimed. We need a superior righteousness which Christ provides for us and in us. And that's what Jesus is going to begin to teach us here this morning and then all throughout the rest of chapter 5 and really throughout the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But he's going to begin here this morning with verses 21 to 26. So let me read that. And then we'll draw up two observations from it. Matthew 5, beginning of verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Matthew chapter 5. Two observations. Here's the first. The letter of the law about murder is more deeply about the spirit of relational anger. The letter of the law about murder is more deeply about the spirit of relational anger. Verse 21, Jesus introduces this topic, and he begins it in the way that he's going to introduce each of the next six topics as he's dealing with different parts of the law. He says it differently for variety's sake, but here he gives it to us all in full. You have heard that it was said to those of old. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the law, spoken by God, said by God through Moses to the ancient forefathers, those of old. And and so far, that's, that's all good. The problem arises in the you have heard part. Jesus is saying, I need to correct what you have heard. 
about what was said by God through Moses to the ancients. Those things were, in fact, said. For sure. But you've, how you've heard those things, what you've heard about them, it's slanted them away that, that has become actually misleading and it's clouded over the, the deeper issue that's kind of beneath the whole thing. The, 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 the truth has become obscured when you've heard it. You shall not murder and those who murder will be executed. Liable to judgment. That's a problem because you've heard it like that. That's, that's the sixth commandment and Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. And you've heard it as if Numbers 35 is part of the sixth commandment, and it's not. It's, they're both in the Bible, but how you've heard it has conflated some things and, and put that together such that what everybody's attention has become focused on is something that would be liable for execution. A capital offense. And so everybody's attention has then been drawn to the physical taking of physical life. That's what would get you executed. The physical taking of physical life must be what the Sixth Amendment is about then. And so people have thought, if I don't physically take physical life, I guess I'm good with the Sixth Amendment. I'm righteous in God's eyes. That unfortunately is not true. But that's where a lot of people were then. That's where a lot of people still are today. Even in the church, that's often how people think of this. Verse 22, but I say to you, and this is an astonishing statement. Just that little phrase right there is an astonishing statement. Not because Jesus is about to change God's law. He's not. But because what's astonishing about it is, remember from last week, Jesus said, all of the Old Testament is pointing to me. I'm the promised king of the promised kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and I'm here. So this is my law that we're talking about. And essentially what he's saying is, let me clarify for you what I meant when I gave the sixth commandment to Moses for you, which is an astonishing claim. I'm the lawgiver, so let me explain my law to you. That's astonishing. People said that Jesus spoke like one who had authority, like this. This is amazing. Everybody would say, even like I would have to say, the Bible says, Moses wrote, Jesus said, I've got to refer, every teacher like that said, this is one who said, let me tell you what I meant. Here's what I meant. But I say to you, and what follows is a triple statement that goes deeper and deeper and deeper and is rhetorically designed, this is the hard part, is rhetorically designed to hammer the listener. If this hammers you, good. Now, as I prayed... It's his kindness that leads to repentance. And there is kindness here. But the first part, the clarity must come through so that we see the problem. Jesus says three things that are designed to leave the listener in shock. 
Everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment in the court. Or one step further, never mind the local court. You know what will take you to the council, that is to the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land like our Supreme Court? You know what will take you to the council and get you condemned there? Insulting your brother. Literally, the word there is raka, a word that means empty. So it's like calling somebody an airhead or calling somebody a feeble-minded thinker. That'll get you condemned in the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. Never mind human courts. You know what will take you into God's court of judgment and then into the fire of hell? Calling someone a fool. Calling someone a fool. And everybody who one verse ago thought, whew, I mean, I don't break the Sixth Commandment, and I'm not really even in any reasonable danger of breaking the Sixth Commandment, so I guess I'm fine. I, I must be comfortably righteous before God. All of a sudden, we realize that we are all guilty before God and all deserving of hell. That has to sit clearly here for a second. Shocked at how low the bar suddenly became. All of us who have ever been angry at someone else, scorned that one in our minds, looked upon him with contempt or disdain, such a loser. Ever called her a fool or a moron or an idiot, rolled your eyes at her and you shook your head? Anybody here in, this, in that category? Right? Anybody here? Absolutely. Every single one of us here. Every single one of us this morning. I tell you, says Jesus, that's what the sixth commandment is about. Always was. The letter of the law is about a worst-case scenario of the possible pinnacle of expression, murder. But the spirit behind it all, underneath of it all, the real issue in my eyes is the heart of anger and disdain and disregard for other image bearers. The heart is what I'm looking at, not just the hands, the action, the heart. That's who you are. That's what I care about. The heart of anger is what lies behind physical murder, and that's actually the deeper problem this command is addressing in all of us and condemning in all of us. The heart of, the spirit of anger. It's got to sit here for a second, but... Let me run off on the side for one moment and clarify something which is perhaps popping into some of our minds. The sort of anger that we're talking about here. Because I've said very carefully in, in laying out the point here, the spirit of relational anger, and that's an important qualifier. Interpersonal relational anger. Because not all anger is always wrong. Not all anger is always wrong. Jesus himself was angry at some things sometimes, right? What was he angry at? It's an important thing about that. And therefore, what might, what might we be righteously angry at, perhaps? Well, Jesus was sometimes angered by sin. 
or by injustice, which is sin. Jesus could be angered at the dishonoring of God, angered as he saw people doing something to others that abused them or hurt them or worked them in some way so as to gain for self. Example, in righteous anger, he clears out the money changers in the temple courts, right? He's angry at that point, and he clears them out because they're ripping people off, they're dishonoring God, and particularly, they're robbing those who would otherwise be using that area for its designated purpose. It was the court of prayer, and they're robbing people of the opportunity to connect with God by changing this into a marketplace. This is supposed to be the house of prayer. And these people can't pray because you. He was angry at that time. So, we could be angry too in such a situation. Could be. Watch out. Because, I mean, our hearts can easily slip and easily slip into over-identifying and over-connecting with some righteous issue that I think I'm defending, the righteous issue that I'm defending, that that I see it as sin and I'm angry about that. It it could also be be that I'm angry at that sin because that sin makes me uncomfortable, me uncomfortable. Or that sin hurts me or my loved ones. Or it in some way gets, gets combative. And so we're not just actually talking about the sin. We're actually competing one against another. And, and I'm seeing you as a rival. And it's really, 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 really easy for our hearts to get wrapped up in stuff and make it all about us and make it interpersonal in the end again. Righteous anger might be hard for us because we might have a difficult time separating out or restraining our self-interest here. So, I say it very cautiously, yes, it is true, not all anger is always anger. And if as I'm talking about this, and as I'm talking about what I'm going to go on into, you're in a spot where you're wrestling with something. You're, you've got some situation where you know, I, I am angry, but I don't know if this is good or right. There's some sin involved. Maybe, maybe somebody abused me or attacked me, and, and something just feels wrong about that, but he just talked about interpersonal stuff. That's so confusing. Okay. If you're having trouble sorting that out, I would love to talk about it later. would love to. But let me just say, go ahead and set that one aside. We don't need to go there into that. That's confusing. That particular situation is confusing and hard, and I would love to talk about it later, but let's set that aside. We don't need to go there. Just think for this morning's sake, for these purposes here right now, think about how you responded to that idiot that cut you off in traffic the other day. Just stay there with that one. This one may be big and hard and confusing. That one's a lot easier. And completely common, because we've all got one, or a dozen, again, this morning even. Just stick with that, that sort of relational angle and stuff, let's all kind of stuff like it. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 22, the heart attitude that leads us to respond to people right around us with the utter disdain. 
And he gives us three types of examples here, not because they are like deeper and worse, but because they give us the, the scope of what our sinful hearts might look like. Rage and scorn and ridicule. Murder in the mind. Character assassination. We even use those words that are about murder to talk about interpersonal stuff because we know that's, where, that's what's going on in my heart there. Murder within and character assassination first starts in here and perhaps it comes out in mockery or slander or gossip or at times maybe slashing tires or fireball flaming insults online post, in online postings or yelling or punching or beating or stabbing or shooting. Like it's less as you go, right? But it's all part of a continuum. That all starts back here, in here, within. The inner attitude of me above you. The inner attitude of my will be done on earth as it should be in heaven. The deification of me. That's where this starts. In here. Proud, not poor in spirit, not meekness, not me using the power that I have to bless you, but actually quite the opposite, me seeing you as someone who should serve me and should serve my desires and my perspectives and my comfort and my safety and my prosperity. And if you don't, if you oppose me in some way or another that I find distasteful and offensive, I will strike you and knock you down. In here, in here at least, and increasingly so, out here. It is no accident that this is becoming a violent and angry country. Because we are several decades into the deification of the identity individual, the individual's identity. We are several decades into me, 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 elevate me. And we are bearing the fruit of that. We are an angry and violent country because we are an individualistic me country who believes that my will should be done. That's the human condition on the inside first and it often then comes out and increasingly so is coming out. This is the human condition. Jesus says, the Bible says, you shall not murder and that's what he means, all of that. Who among us can stand then? Who among us can stand? The righteousness that the Pharisees taught and clung to, I think you, you kind of press into this and you realize, that's ridiculous. That is nowhere near enough. Completely inadequate. Unless we be critical of them. This is the way that all religions and all human attempts to be right with God work. It's the human way to focus our attention and our efforts on behavior that in theory, if I wanted to, would be 100% doable. That's how human religions work. It keeps the relationship with God under our control. We make the rules that we, if we try, we can do them and we can control the results 
and take credit for it when I succeed. That's how man-made religions work. But the religion of God slays you. Always. The religion of God, as I said here, we've got clarity and comfort. I'm not quite to the comfort yet. The clarity part. This is one of the ways you can tell. Is this a man-made religion or, a, or the religion of God? And when I face it, do I end up feeling pretty good about myself or not? That's the first clue. The religion of God slays you. There is no one righteous. No, not one, says the Bible repeatedly. No, not one. All of us, angered with others over our wounded pride or thwarted plans, frustrated in the hatred that wells up within us and contempt that comes out of us. This is all too common even for us Christians in the church. It's all too common. It is overrunning the world. Here we are at the end of the clarity part. Are you mourning yet? Not over the theory, but over yourself. I've known I've been getting ready to preach this all week, and I've been thinking about this, and I can't turn around and not break this commandment. I am surrounded by a, a world full of idiots. It is amazing. No, no offense to the present company. <laughs> right? I can't turn around and not break this. I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I'm a mature, I'm a mature believer. I walk up the Lord for a long time. I cannot turn around and not break this command. I can't drive home. I can't go to the grocery store. I can't live without breaking this command. Are you mourning yet? You can't live without breaking this command. Everything that pops into your mind is, what an idiot, what a moron. They should do constantly. Are you mourning yet? None of the gospel nonsense that Jesus talks about makes any sense until you feel like, oh, what am I going to do? Every time I turn around, I'm liable to the hell of fire. What am I going to do? None of the gospel nonsense makes any sense until you are poor in spirit, mourning, broken, hopeless. I can't obey this. I can't make a list of stuff to do and check off the box. This is ridiculous. I can't turn around without breaking this commandment. What am I going to do? I need a righteousness that comes from outside of me. I can't make one up hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I say, help and bless the name of the Lord. He is merciful and gracious and says, here, here. Let's be clear, and now let's be comforted because the God who is says that all is true. Are you broken yet? Well, then here, come and let me bind up your wounds. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You will find me merciful, merciful, merciful. If you come to me broken, if you come to me proud, you'll find that I still have a hammer. And the hellfire is real. But if you come to me saying, oh, God, help, you will find me humble and gentle and lowly and meek and merciful because that's what I love to be. That's in my heart. That's what I am towards you. Come. If you hear this and you let it hit you, then you come broken, hungering, and thirsting, and you find, bless the name of the Lord that he has provided for all who come to him in simple faith, hungering. He's provided a righteousness that is far better than anything that we can attempt in our keeping of the, the checking of the boxes, the keeping of the law. He sent the one, the only one who ever kept the sixth commandment all the way down and yet was condemned in the courts of men in heaven anyway condemned for you and your law-breaking and condemned to clean you, to clean you clear, free of it all. This is the glory of the gospel, a righteousness come from God in Christ to you. Here, he says, I need help. I need forgiveness. Here it is. And that's nonsense until you see you need it. But when you see you need it, it's glory. Because it's real and full and sufficient. This God is good. This God is holy, 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 and merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Christian, that's your whole story. Let's be clear and let's be comforted because that's your whole story. The hammer actually is never going to fall on you. It fell on him on the cross. That's good news. And if you're not a Christian... That could be yours. Come simply saying, I need a righteousness that I cannot produce by my own checking off of the boxes, my own obeying of the commands. I need you to give me yours, Jesus, wholly and completely. And he will. That's the gospel. That's good news, gospel. Not a recipe what you are supposed to do, but the acknowledgement you can't and the receiving that he has. That's good news. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give you this rest. He'll forgive you. Righteousness. God looks on you in Christ with a smile, even, even when I turn around repeatedly and break this law. That's astonishing. But like any good and loving father, he says but I'm committed to your growth. The righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, remember from last week, it's a standing in righteousness and it is a walking in righteousness. That's the second point now, that he's going to build into us a righteousness that walks it out better than the Pharisees ever did. We're called to live out obedience to this command in a way far superior to them. Not just do not murder, and not even, do not be relationally angry, angry more, something positive. All of the law is both about the negative and the positive. And so we've just explored the negative with clarity, been comforted about God's forgiveness of us in our sin. Bless God. And now we're going to talk about how he grows us to walk out in righteousness, the positive. So here's the second point. 
Sixth commandment, righteousness, entails love that quickly makes peace with all others. Sixth commandment, righteousness, entails love that quickly makes peace with all others. Love that quickly makes peace with all others. In verse 23, Jesus moves to apply what he just taught us. So then, therefore, this is how you should live this out. And what we might expect would be some sort of commandments about, therefore, uh, don't insult others, don't be angry, don't ridicule, something like that. But instead, he gives us two scenarios, and in neither one of them, if I'm the listener, in neither one of them am I angry. Which might be surprising, that's what he was just talking about. In neither one of them am I angry, and in fact, in the first one, I'm not even aware initially that there even is a problem. I'm oblivious to it at the start. So let's look at this, this is interesting. Verse 23, so... Therefore, here's how you apply this. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and keep in mind the context here, the only altar they would have known would be in the temple in Jerusalem, and he's speaking in Galilee some 80 miles to the north or so, approximately. So, if, if you're his listener, and you Putting you in this scenario here, if you would, have, you would be getting ready to offer a gift at the altar in Jerusalem, you would have gotten there on probably one of the pilgrimages. It's, it's been a, somewhat of a journey to get down there with your animal in tow, the gift, the sacrifice. So you've, you've come down to Jerusalem, and you're there at the temple, you're in line. It, it would be throngs of people, great big altar. You're there to offer your sacrifice to God as a way of worshiping him, but right at the moment that you're there at the altar... Something pops in, the, in your mind. Interesting. Don't know how that would have popped into your mind. You know, maybe God tapped you on the shoulder. But it comes to mind, you re- remember someone who has something against you. Perhaps you made him angry. Don't know. But you realize at that moment, somebody has a problem with me. What should you do? Verse 24, hand the leash, the rope around the animal's neck, hand the leash over to one of the priests standing there. I'll be right back in about two weeks. Go. There's emphasis here in this language. Go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come back and offer the gift of worship. That's what he says, using this extreme sort of example. Lots of teachers in the day, it was completely common, Jesus does this all the time also, taught by speaking in exaggerated, almost impossible terms so as to make a point clear. It comes up in the next example that we'll see where Jesus talks about tearing out your eye or cutting off your hand. He doesn't mean that literally. He's using an extreme example to make a point. Same thing here. You couldn't literally leave your gift there at that extremely busy temple court. It would have been presumptuous to even ask anybody to hold on to your animal for a couple weeks. That's not what he means, literally. But the point is clear. You must prioritize 
this horizontal relationship. That's what he's getting at. Must. Especially in the church, he uses the term brother, I think, to make us think about that. It doesn't preclude the need to do it with everybody. The next example includes somebody who probably isn't a brother. So it's, it's everybody, but it's especially important in the church that we be this kind of a community that, that prioritizes brotherly love. Don't try to worship God without first loving other people by making peace with them. Peacemaking. Seeking, and as much as it's up to you, actually making whatever has offended or harmed, whatever kind of offense you've done, making that resolved. Fixing it. Not covering it up, not ignoring it, but meekly mending what's broken between you. Jesus is saying, don't skip that and just come into God's presence and worship as if that will please him. You can't do this without first doing this. It's, it's a point made often in the Bible. Think, for instance, especially of 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands. What does 1 Peter 3, 7 say to husbands? Deal with this with your wife or your prayers will be hindered. Don't bother coming to talk to me until you have dealt with my daughter right. Then come talk to me. Fix this first. Same thing there as here. Prioritize this horizontal relationship. God is supremely concerned that his people be peacemakers like he is. This is Jesus' application to you shall not kill, which is kind of interesting, I think. But you can see where he gets it. Negatively, don't physically take physical life. And that's really about negatively. Don't disdain other people and foster anger or scorn or the putting down of others because you love yourself. Not that. But positively, there is something you must do to be righteous in God's eyes. Love others. Meekly love your neighbor. Seeking to eliminate discord and solve relational problems. Take the initiative to do that. Make peace with others top priority. We would probably rather just go to church and sing some songs and give some money and call it good than humbly go to somebody else and say, what did I do wrong? Tell me so that I can make it right. We don't like that. It's embarrassing. It's awkward, hard. It sounds super easy until you actually, I don't know if you've ever done this and ever paid attention to yourself in the moment, but you stand there in front of somebody and it's like the words are tied into the back of your throat. You can't spit them out. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? When I did that, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? It's like I can't even speak those words. They're just stuck in there. I kind of want to say, you know, or maybe just, you know, buy a dozen flowers and make it okay. Make it okay. I don't do that. But 
Some do. Let's just, let's just, let me do something to show that I'm wrong rather than actually say, humble myself. God calls us to make it right with others first and he lights a fire under us with the second illustration. Verses 25 and 26, different scenario. Now you, you have an accuser and it's not just you have to go take the initiative to go to someone that you might remember as a problem. Clearly this guy has a problem with you and he is on his way to court and he is going to get you. That's the scenario. Judge to guard to prison until you've paid every last cent of your debt. Jesus is probably describing a debtor's prison. We have to be in prison until you paid off everything that you owed, but it really doesn't matter what the exact issue is. The point is, judgment against you is coming, and you have about, you know, depending on traffic, about 17 minutes. Because if this gets into court, you are going away for a long time. That's what he's saying. So, make peace quickly. That's what he says. That's the emphasis. Quickly, while there's still time, while you are still with this person on the way to the judge, because if you go before the judge, there's no second chance. You're going to lose. Be righteous right now. So, all of this, through the clarity about what it's about negatively and positively, and then the comfort about how God actually causes us to stand forgiven, clean, pure, smile on his face accepted, but then calls us to walk it out. Now we come to this point of saying like, so, brothers and sisters, where do you need to make peace with someone, to love someone. Where? Who? Do it today. Quickly. And then keep short accounts going forward and don't let the sun go down on your anger, but be reconciled. And if you need help with with how to think about that, then maybe you want to listen again to the peacemaking sermon from a few weeks ago, up up in verse 9. But this is particularly important within the the body of of the church that 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 be what this community is like. A community of peace that is characterized by love is a sweet and clear testimony to who God actually is. And that is a remarkable witness to the world. It is a remarkable way to be salt and light because people don't deal like that in the world. That's what he's calling us to. But why is this hard? Because we fear that if we lay down our lives, we're going to lose. We're going to lose something. We're, we're going to lose our rights. We're going to lose our, our possessions. People are going to take from us. So we've got to fight them. We've we got like, to like contend in this adversarial world. So it's not just that it's, it's embarrassing, but it also feels like if I lose, I will lose some sort of ground, some sort of standing, some sort of resource Christian, face that with the truth. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your father owns the cattle on a thousand hills and everything else. And the earth and everything in it is your inheritance. That's true. This is the truth for you. You got everything that you need. And next week, you'll have everything that you need. And five years from now, you'll have everything that you need. And 10,000 years from now, you'll have everything that you need. So may God, filling you with His Spirit, move, direct your attention to all that He is for you in Christ, who is enough for you. May He lead you into praying, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, not mine. Your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. May he lead you to, to pray that and to believe it and to live in light of it. He, he ra- he forgive, he's forgiven you and he's raised you and filled you to walk in newness of life, righteous in standing and righteous in walking as a loving peacemaker. That's the work that God has done in you. Yes, we are all lawbreakers and saints if you're a Christian. Sinners, yeah, and forgiven. Here in a world of vulnerable, yeah, and completely secured and fully blessed. That's your story. That's good news. Let me pray. God, would you help us to hear the story and to believe it and then to live here as loving peacemakers, representatives of you. We need help with this, Lord. Would you, would you help us? And would you help us as we if perhaps there are some here still kind of torn about something in anger in their lives and hearts, will you speak to them and help? Work here now to build your people, to build us up, to do us good, and to make us people who do good to the city here in which we live. Peacemakers, lovers of others, models of what you were like. Help us with that, we pray, for your honor, for the good of us, your people, and for the good of the world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.